0: refuge. So God, we've gathered in the spirit of these and and so many other passages of Scripture to declare indeed that you are faithful, that you have gone before your people, that um, we are the beneficiaries of others who have fought and laid down their lives for us, chief among them you. Uh, On this Memorial Day weekend, Father, it is appropriate that we gather and, and give thanks for the freedom that we have in the United States to gather, to do what we're doing right now. And to recognize that throughout the history of our country, many lives have been lost to secure that freedom. And so, Father, it's it's with great joy that that we, as your church, partner with many other Americans who are not part of your church and honor those who have uh, fallen in uh, one of the services in order to help secure this freedom. God, we're grateful for those amongst our own number who are not here with us this morning. Uh, a number of us away for this weekend, enjoying family, enjoying good things. Um, once again, a testament to how much has been secured for us. We pray for them, for those among our body who are not here. We pray for their encouragement. Uh, We pray for their, certainly their safety, and that even while they're away from us, they would be spending deep time with one another and with you, and that you would enrich their hearts and their souls, even this morning in worship. And we look forward to you bringing them back to us safely uh, this next Sunday. We pray especially for those this morning, Father God, maybe those in this room or others that those of us, of us in this room are connected to who are mourning the losses of those who have um, passed away in the service of our country. Father God, we pray for their encouragement. We pray that there would be um, solace in the fact that, that that is an honorable thing, to die in the defense of others and, this freedom, and to secure freedoms. So Father God, we pray that you would encourage them this morning. And and lastly, Father, we recognize that that all of this honoring those who have fought for us and secured freedom for us is just an echo of the ultimate one who has fought the ultimate fight to secure the ultimate freedom, that you indeed are our fortress and our refuge, the the one we can hide behind as you picture yourself in the Bible as, as if you're a literal fortress whose walls protect us because, Jesus, you have gone forth to fight the ultimate battle against sin and death and you died and shed your blood to secure an eternal peace, um, one that won't ever be shaken. And so, Jesus, this morning, we pray that you would lead us as a people to walk in light of your sacrifice for us that atones for our sin, to walk in light of the fact that you are our advocate. You are the one who defends us successfully. You are the one who secures for us eternal life. So, Father, we've gathered to acknowledge and to give great memorial to you. I pray that every single day of our lives and of this church's existence, we would be a living memorial to the one who has fought and died for us. Draw all men to yourself this morning. We pray that you would change us for our good and your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I appreciate you, team leading us to worship God in music. Uh, they will come back uh, shortly, and we will do so again. First, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it and turn it to the New Testament book of 1 John, where we are continuing an ongoing series. Uh, While you're flipping your Bibles there toward the end of your New Testaments, the book of 1 John, Um, I woke up this morning just starting to battle the first traces of a little bit of a head cold, so... I won't be offended if you don't want to come shake my hand after the service. I'll assume that's because of the cold, not for other reasons. If it's for other reasons, you can keep that to yourself. No, seriously, it made me remember that many years ago, this was probably 15, 18 years ago, um, I got horribly sick. I mean, like awful sick I got this nasty respiratory infection my lungs filled up with all kinds of junk and I was you know it's that kind of thing that every time you breathe out it just rattles you know and this just went on and on I thought okay it's a flu or whatever I'll get over it And after like I don't know a week or 10 days or something I'm like I think I'm really sick I should go to the doctor so I go to the doctor and he looks at me like why did you wait this long to come in I'm like, because another doctor told me it's 7 to 10. to Anyway, whatever. I'm like, I'm feeling chewed out. But here I am. I'm like, fix me, doc. I'm clearly sick. And he says, yeah, all right, you got this infection. He checks me out. He prescribes um, a pretty powerful antibiotic that he was sure would clear up this respiratory infection. Uh, so I went home and I faithfully started um, taking it. Now, if you've had um, a bacterial infection like that and you've been on antibiotics, you know what it's like. As soon as you start taking the medicine, almost immediately you begin feeling better. You're not not quite healed yet, you know, but you begin feeling better. And for the first couple days, I did feel better, but as the week went on, and I, I can't remember how long the regimen was. It was, I don't know, 10 days or something, 7 days, whatever it was. As the week went on, um, I noticed I kind of feel better overall, but, like, I'm, my chest is not clearing up. It's still full of garbage. I'm still coughing. I'm still rattling when I breathe. I mean, it was just awful, and and toward the end of this antibiotic regimen, I'm like, okay, I'm no doctor, but I know enough to know that, like, this is not working. (laughs) I mean, he was sure that this antibiotic would would whip this infection that I had, and it's not working. So sure enough, I finished the um, medication, and I'm still sick. I'm, like, coughing up a lung, you know, just horribly ill, and so I made another appointment. I went back to the doctor. I mean, by now, I had been sick for weeks. Like, what I remember is, I couldn't remember what it felt like to breathe out and not feel your chest rattle. I was like, what's it like to just breathe normally? I mean, just what I just did was like glorious, you know? I couldn't even remember that. So I go back to the doctor, and he's looking at me like, what are you doing here? I don't know. You're the doctor. <laughs> he, uh, he was a pretty good doctor, technically. He needed to work, I think, on his bedside manner. Um... Different story. Point being, like literally, he was, I, I think he was just confused as to why I was still sick. Once he looked at my chart, and he remembered that I'd been in and he'd given me this antibiotic, but it came across like something was wrong with me. Like I'm feeling judged because I'm still sick. I'm like, you're the one that gave me the pill. I mean, you know, you're the expert. So he says, wow, well, this is obviously, you know, whatever serious infection. So he checks me out again. He prescribes a different antibiotic. I believe he used the word nuclear. Um, I have no idea what it was. It was so long ago i don 't remember, although this was during that time period. Many of you may remember when some like crazy terrorist wacko guy was like mailing anthrax to members of Congress. Do you guys remember that story so it was like all over the national news and, and how you know it 's a biological agent it 's a bacterial agent, so you know antibiotics were the way to treat it so all this Stuff about antibiotics was in the news. So kind of half-joking, he tells me this antibiotic is nuclear. I said, oh, so like if somebody mails me anthrax, I'll be okay. And I kind of laughed. And he stopped and he thought about it for a second. He goes, yeah, that would work. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Got the nuclear antibiotics. I take it. Within a couple days, I start feeling better. Good news is four or five days into it, like I can feel all the garbage starting to break up. And long story short, I finished it out. And that finally broke the infection. I, I mean, I was coughing and rattling for over a month but finally, it was like I got on the slow road to recovery with that uh, medication that broke the infection, got my life back, I got my lungs back, um, survived the ordeal. But I will never, it's the sickest and longest I have ever been sick probably in my life. That's kind of the way, you know, antibiotics work when you're on them. You, you immediately begin feeling the effects or, or almost immediately. Now, they're not, they're not done yet. You know, they always tell you, even if you feel totally cured, you've got to take them until they're all the way done just to you know, make sure that it has its full effect. The work isn't yet done, but it's progressing. And you can usually tell because you feel it. You actually feel better. You see evidence of it. And it turns out, and the pastors are going to look at this morning that Mark read for us earlier, the Bible's going to tell us that Christianity works in much the same way. When you become a Christian, it starts having an effect on your life that doesn't reach completion until Jesus comes back, but it begins changing us now, and you can tell. That's essentially the message of the book, uh, the passage of this book that we're in this morning. Uh, You'll recall that 1 John, if you've been with us since the series started, is a book of the New Testament that's designed to equip us as Christians to discern real Christianity from um, false fraud, fraudulent christianity so that we'll have great confidence in our own salvation and so as you go through the book of first john you say well how do you differentiate real christianity from the fraudulent ones and three consistent themes are constantly repeated in this book the first is that genuine christianity is true to the original it's true to the words of jesus and the teachings of the apostles the other two focus on the effects of real christianity Uh, Secondly, the uh, real Christianity will um, have an impact on a person's life. It will produce increasing obedience to Jesus. And then lastly, uh, real Christianity produces sacrificial love for fellow Christians. Now, it's that second uh, bullet point, the one that's highlighted there on the screen, that's really the main focus of this morning's passage. This is maybe one of the strongest passages, certainly in the book of 1 John, probably in terms of the entire Bible that talks about the impact that the Spirit of God has on the life of a Christian. How does becoming a Christian change us in practice? And he begins with simply one idea that he's going to flesh out um, along a couple of parallel tracks, and the idea is simply this. Jesus' perfectly righteous nature is passed on to his followers and visibly manifests itself in their life over time. That's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. The sinless, righteous nature of Jesus himself is passed on to his followers in a way, in such a way that it actually shows itself. It makes a mark in a person's life that is visible over time. That's a big statement, and that's, that's where this passage begins. If we look in chapter 2, where we're starting this morning, verses 28, uh, actually we'll start in 29 here, and then chapter 3, verse 1 um, By the way, as an aside, many of you know that the the chapter breaks in the Bible were added centuries after the Bible was written just to help people, you know, find their way around the Bible. They're very useful, but they weren't originally there. This is one of those places where the chapter breaks probably in the wrong spot, okay? So you get a break from chapter 2 to chapter 3, but it's actually kind of one consistent thought. That's why we're starting in chapter 2, verse 28, which should be chapter 3, verse 1, but nobody asked me, so there we go. Um, Now, little children, abide in him, remain in Jesus... So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. There it is. Here's how you can have confidence that your life is rooted in the real deal, the real Christianity. We titled the sermon, The Essential Ingredient to Spiritual Success. How's that for an advertising hook? (laughs) Granted, that's a little bit oversimplified, as if there's only one thing. There's, there's a lot to know and a lot to learn in Scripture about being and living effectively for Christ as a Christian. But it, it is nonetheless true that this passage of Scripture is going to focus on the one essential thing that we need to have confidence that when Jesus appears, we will be counted as his children. Turns out that is the life of God in us. He says that as he moves on. Uh, verse 29 If you know that he is righteous, and the way that's worded, it really means since you know, that Jesus himself is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now we run into this strong language of like you're you're born of God, you're a child of God. In fact, what I want us to see here is that for John, this is not just a, a theological principle that's kind of like out there somewhere. Uh, nor is it just kind of like a metaphor or a word picture. Yeah, you know, God kind of calls himself, he's like a father to us, and he calls us his children, which is really sweet, but it just, you know, it's just a way of saying that, that God wants to be in relationship with us. Well, it is a way of saying that, but it's actually much more. He is actually saying, God really, when you become a Christian, becomes your father, and you really become his son or his daughter in a way that has real-world implications for your life. He's blown away by this. Look at how he starts, chapter 3. See, or some of your Bibles say, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are, before we go in further in the passage. Like, let's just get in kind of the emotional space that John here is clearly in when he's writing this. He is blown away. That like, guys, look at this. Think about this. God doesn't just accept unworthy people as an act of grace, although he does that, which is incredible, but that's not all he does when a person comes to saving faith in Christ. Furthermore, he doesn't just shower love upon unworthy people when they don't deserve it, although he definitely does that. And if that's all he did, it would be amazing. But it's not just that God loves us or that God accepts worship from unworthy worshipers as an act of grace. As incredible as all those things are, John is saying, guys, think about this. Can you fathom the kind of love God gives us that we would be called his children? Not the poor recipients of his grace. Not the sinful people whom he treats better than they deserve. His Children, and then he drives the point home, and so we are. The point of this is that the idea of being a child of God is not just a nice word picture, it is an utterly amazing reality. Where is John getting this idea? He's getting it from Jesus, no surprise. We've got a couple of passages listed up there um, on the screen. Jesus introduced this language himself, John chapter 3. He says, uh, That which is born of flesh, this is, by the way, the passage of Scripture, um, we're not going to take the time to go back and do all the context of it. This is where Jesus introduces the language of being born again. To enter the kingdom of God, you can't just be a good religious person. He says you have to be born again, you have to have a whole new kind of life, a whole new birth, and that's the phrase where, John chapter 3, where the phrase born again Christian comes from, it's the lips of Jesus himself. He explains a little bit further in verses 6 and 7. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. so if you're going to be with God, you can't just be a sinful person that God is nice to. You have to become a different kind of person. You have to be born all over again. Yeah, that's amazing, but Jesus says it's not really amazing when you think about it. You have to be transformed. That's what I've come to do. That's what I've come to do. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's pointing out the fact that just like with biological parents, the nature of parents is passed on to their offspring. Cows give birth to cows. Uh, Horses give birth to horses. People give birth to people. And spirit gives birth to spirit. That's his point. A Christian carries, you might want to say, a little bit of God's DNA in him or her. Now we're going to be careful here to make sure we understand what we're saying and what we're not saying. We're certainly not saying that a Christian becomes like a demi-god. That's not. We don't bear any of God's like you know immortality or his you know his supernatural power or something like that. Uh, I, I don't become divine when I become a Christian. I'm the same as every other human being in terms of what I am. But there is nonetheless another very real sense in which Jesus says, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Your spirit becomes alive because you have been birthed by the living spirit, the Holy Spirit of God himself. And you therefore bear some of his righteous character, his spiritual DNA, if you will. He elaborates on this a little bit further in John chapter 15. Again, Jesus speaking when he's talking to his disciples about the role that the Holy Spirit will play. Verses 18 and 19. He also tells us we bear his identity because we're born of him. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if that was your nature, well, then the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. You see, when you become a Christian, your identity has fundamentally changed. Not just your allegiance, although that's true. Your identity has fundamentally changed because you've inherited some of the nature of your parent who is now God himself. got an illustration of this just recently I I met um, a pastor recently in town he's actually been around for a while but he and I just met um, he's a Caucasian guy so is his wife and they have a couple of biological children who are white go figure Um, they also adopted uh, a young black boy who has now been raised with them for many years he's like in junior high or something so here you have these like two kids Adoptive brothers, one's black, one's white. They both go to the same school, and this this pastor was encouraging some of us, asking some of us, other pastors around, um, to pray for him because his black son had recently experienced some racism at his school. It was a predominantly white school, and the school leadership didn't really seem to understand it or respond to it very well. So he was asking for prayer. Like my wife and I have to go meet with them, and like not be ugly or anything, but like we have to help them. Like I got to defend and protect my son. And it struck me in that moment, like, which son is he talking about? The one who faced the racism. He's got two boys raised in the same home, by the same parents, going to the same school. And yet one is treated differently than the other. Why? Well, because we live in a sinful, broken world, and people look at the color of his skin, and it marks him off as different he has inherited from his biological parents an identity that is visible even in the color of his skin, and it affects the way that people treat him. That's the way sin works. And Jesus says, that's what's going to happen in the world. When you are a follower of me, you will be treated sometimes badly because of it, but that's not because you've necessarily done anything wrong. It's because you're identified with me, and the world hated me first. You've inherited an identity from me. Do you see the point of this? When the Bible calls us children of God, it's not just a a metaphor or a word picture. It is a radical change that has taken place in the life of a person. By the way, that John 15 um, point illustrates the fact that as Christians, this is an aside, but when we see people in the world or maybe our culture, maybe it's on the news or it's on social media, or maybe actually know somebody personally, and they're really kind of hostile toward Christianity, and they say all sorts of ugly things about Jesus or God or church. Sometimes our first reaction is to get personally defensive because we feel attacked. But Jesus helps us understand, look, maybe you can take a deep breath and step back. Who they really hate is Christ, not me. So I should probably understand that and be able to take a deep breath and not feel quite so personally attacked. Because there's an identity in me that is ultimately rooted in Christ himself. That gives me the ability to not necessarily respond in kind. Well, the point of this is that it is deep, deep identity stuff. Christianity is not a matter of one's personal, private, religious beliefs, nor is it contained to one small corner of my life called religion. The Bible is teaching that Christianity is a matter of inheriting the nature and identity of our Savior in a very real way. That's the main point of the passage this morning. Jesus' perfectly righteous nature is passed on to his followers, and it visibly manifests itself in our lives over time. Now, the rest of the passage is just going to sort of develop that along two lines that are kind of in tension with one another. Because for Christians, this becomes a potentially confusing topic. What does that mean that the nature of Jesus is in me, and people are supposed to see it? Like, how much, and what does that mean, and how does that work, and what does that feel like? And we have, like, a hundred questions The Bible's going to help us answer some of them as it develops this thought along two lines. First of all, they're kind of intention. The the first point, I'll just tell you what they are, and we'll look at them briefly and be done. The first is that while the the nature of Jesus is in me, um, it only shows itself partially now in this life, not fully. We'll talk about that in a second. And then on the other hand, John's going to come along and say, but it's undeniable that it will show itself. And therein lies the tension that we're going to see repeatedly as we go through the rest of this passage. If I'm a Christian, the nature of Jesus is in me. It does not manifest itself fully, because I'm still battling with sin in this life. Nevertheless, it will manifest itself undeniably, even though not fully. Do you see the tension there? If you're a Christian and you've ever felt confused on this point, it's because it's confusing. <laughs> the Bible's going to help give us some guidance here. We'll see if we can sort it out. Start, away, uh, start into verses 2 and 3, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where he largely makes this first point. Jesus' righteousness in us shows itself um, partially, but not yet fully. He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, right now, this very moment. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, referring to the coming of Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be totally like him in his nature. What is his nature? Verse 5 tells us, if you can skip ahead a little bit, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Jesus is totally and utterly sinless. That's who he is in his nature. And his mission was to remove sin. So what happens if I'm a Christian is when Christ comes back, I will finally have all of my sin totally removed. Hallelujah. (laughs) That happens, but notice in verse 2, that happens then, at a future point. When he appears, we will be just like him because we will see him as he is. Meaning what? Since he hasn't appeared yet, We're not fully like him yet. Even though this is a direct consequence of us being God's children right now, the nature of God that our John chapter 3 new birth puts in us, that is the Holy Spirit in us, is that God's own perfectly sinless righteousness, it's injected into us. You can almost think of it like a blood transfusion, right? Every analogy breaks down somewhere, but that's sort of the idea I've got my own blood in my life, and if it's diseased, God can help flush some of it out by flushing in his perfectly undiseased blood that's now in my life. Sorry if blood transfusions gross you out. I'll get off of that analogy, okay? What this is is the doctrine of regeneration. This is what Bible scholars call it, the doctrine of regeneration. One Bible scholar, Wayne Grudem, summarizes what that means in a single sentence. What does the Bible teach us about this idea of regeneration? Here's Grudem's words, they're up on the screen. He says, regeneration is an act of God in which he imparts spiritual life to people. And he just points out two key things. First of all, that's an act of God, it's nothing we do. That's God's sovereign election and his choice. But what he does is he imparts spiritual life to us. Like there's something that changes deep within the heart of a person. That allows them to then see the gospel as glorious and respond in faith and repentance and then begin to experience transformation and cleansing from our sin. That's what regeneration means, new life, John chapter 3. But verse 2 has told us that this sort of imparting of spiritual life um, does have a visible impact on the Christian's lifestyle. We'll say more on that in a second. But it won't be full and complete in reality in a Christian's life until Jesus returns. So do you see that tension there? Like God has put some of himself in me, and it will show itself. We'll talk about that in a second. But for now, I'm not going to be fully sinless and righteous until Jesus returns. And the reason I'm dwelling on this point is I want us to see that that the Apostle John, in the book of 1 John, which as we've said already, is such a, a binary book. It's so black and white, and it makes so many of us kind of feel like we don't measure up. John himself, in this very book teaches us that we're not going to be fully sinless like Jesus was until he returns. Meaning that genuine Christians should expect to find evidence both of God's sinless spirit in them and my own sinful spirit still in me. And they're doing battle with one another. John, in the book of 1 John, tells us that if I'm a genuine Christian, I should still expect to find that there is a war of sin going on in my life, and sometimes I lose that battle, which, by the way, is a great encouragement for Christians who tend to feel really condemned um, from 1 John. When you read some of the words that we're going to get to in a moment, Mark read them earlier, very strong language, anyone who's in God cannot keep on sinning, and I'm like, oh man, I sin all the time, you know, Maybe maybe I just don't measure up, and we can sometimes feel very condemned. Man, if that's you, be encouraged by verse 2. What we are has not yet been fully revealed, not until Jesus, or what we will be, sorry, has not yet been fully revealed, not until Jesus comes. Sometimes we can feel, I think, like the Bible is, is sizing us up and just shooting us down, like one of my college math professors did to me. Oh, this guy drove me nuts. Actually, math drove me nuts, but that's a different story. Um, I was at a huge university, um, gigantic, and um, Evans Hall on the Berkeley campus is associated with nothing but negative memories for me. First of all, it was a concrete box. It looked like a World War II bunker. Why do college buildings often look so ugly? I don't know. Anyway, it was where the math department was headquartered, so I had a math class as an undergraduate, um, and the professor was there, and I think he was one of these guys who did not want to teach undergraduate students, but he had to because that was his job. So you're in this huge lecture hall, two, three hundred students, you know, and he's teaching us, I don't remember what in the world it was now, and like his goal, I think, was just to weed people out. He only wanted to work with like math majors and people who liked math as much as he did, and here's all of us undergraduates and, you know, science majors and engineering, people that didn't care about math, they just had to take a class. Anyway, he hated it, so he would give us these tests that were like doctoral level tests, that were like master's degree level, like nobody would score hundred percent. And then they grade you on a curve. So people were getting like Bs for scoring like 40 and 50 percent on these tests. And they were brutally difficult. So we're going through one of these tests. I'll never forget this. I get this midterm back, and I c- compared to everybody else in the class, I did okay. I mean, I had a passing grade, but I'd gotten several wrong. So I do what you're supposed to do. You go to office hours, right? The professors have office hours, and you can get coaching on things you missed. And so I'm there in his office with several students, um, and I was sitting there listening to him and I was shocked because almost every student that asked him a question, he would just give these really snippy responses, really impatient. Um, and then there was a couple of them that he actually just said. It was like coming up to the deadline where you could drop the class. There were literally a couple of students in front of me before I got to ask my question that he said, I think you should drop this course. <laughs> this was the only prof I'd ever heard actually tell people, you need to drop my class because you don't have what it takes. I'm like, who is this guy, you know? So I get up there, it's time for my question. I'm like, okay, well, here, um, I got a couple problems wrong on this test, but this is the one I have a question about. I started asking him about it. And he notices there's one earlier. He's like, well, you got that one wrong too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was just sort of a computational error. Like I got the math concept right in that. I just messed up the computation. So that's not where my question is. And I tried to get him back to where my real question was. And he says, well, you could make a computational error again, couldn't you? Uh yeah, I suppose so, because I'm not a supercomputer, you know, what did you, do? you know. And I'm trying to get him back. Can you explain this idea to me? And he finally just kinda looks and he looks at me right in the eyes and he says, I think you should drop this course. You know. <laughs> Sin nature is still in you. Yes. Okay. Um he had told one of my friends that, too. We're in class the next day, and my friend's just like, he told me I should drop. Man, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to take this class or whatever. And neither one of us dropped it, and I did pass the class. Um, but I will never forget standing in front of him, seeing his little eyes, look right at me, and just say, you're a loser. You don't measure up. You should leave. Now, whether, whether that crushes you or whether that makes you angry, it's the same thing. Like, it is not fun to stand in front of somebody and just have them say, you don't measure up. And I think a lot of us feel that way when we read First John, Right? He's just going, man, you shouldn't be sinning. You're sinning. You don't measure up. And we're like, ah. And we either get onto that shame road of just imploding or we go get on that striving road and we say, I'm going to do better. Understand, John is telling us we all have wrong answers on the midterm of our lives. We all do. We all have sin. To use the Bible's language, we all fall short of God's glory. but that doesn't automatically mean that we should drop the Jesus following course. Uh, Nobody will get 100% until Christ himself returns. That's good news if you're a Christian, you see sin in your life. So keep that in mind. Now, having said that, he moves to the second point, verse three, that the sinless perfection of Jesus does produce visible results in a Christian's life over time. In fact, he says that right away in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. You see the idea there? I know one day that the life Jesus put in me is going to come to its full fruition when he returns. That's who I am. That's my destiny. So how does that affect the way I live right now? He just told us in verse 3. Because I'm so anchored on that, I'm so eager and excited about that future, I realize that that life is in me right now. It hasn't come to full fruition yet. It will then, but the actual life is there now. Later on in the passage, he calls it a seed, going with this kind of agricultural analogy. It's in me now, and so I want to lean on that as much as I can. I want to run toward the righteous holiness of Christ in my own life as much as possible. It results in a life of increasing righteousness, even now, which sets us up for where he's headed next in the sort of main body of this whole Um, passage verses 4 to 10 let me just point out one thing before we get there which will be our kind of final main point all of the verbs in this passage this is really important to understand it are in uh, a tense in the original greek language that this was written in that sort of denotes kind of an ongoing regular habitual or characteristic kind of action And that's a little bit unusual. It's very prominent in this passage. Here's what that means. If you look at chapter 2, verse 29, where we started. Since you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness... Okay, That's in that tense. The kind of person who regularly, habitually, characteristically is living a righteous life. That doesn't mean there's never any sin. That means like this is the overall characteristic pattern of your life. And the same uh, pattern repeats over and over again. Verse 3. The one who thus hopes in him purifies himself in an ongoing, characteristic way so that it's sort of habitual. Verse uh, 4. Uh, we'll skip down a little bit into where we're about to jump. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning—there it is. Everyone who characteristically, regularly, habitually is known to be—you know—it's this idea of ongoing action over time. Do you see that? And this this happens all over the place. Most of our English Bibles have tried to capture this by using words like "practice[s] righteousness" or "practice[s] sin," or they will say at other places "keeps on sinning" or "keeps on," you know, living righteous. It's that idea of ongoing regular characteristic behavior why is that so important well because if you can look at a person and see kind of a snapshot of whether or not they're doing really well in this moment at this given point in time that's fairly easy to see but what's not so easy to see is like what is this what is this person like overall you can't really get that just by you know sitting across from a a coffee table for half an hour or something. Like, you only really get to know a person's character as you observe them over time. You know, if you live with somebody, for instance, your kids, your parents, your spouse, those are people you know because my wife and I, we've been living together for two and a half decades. We know each other's characteristic tendencies, the good ones and the bad ones. So much so that at this point, she can pretty much predict how I'm going to think or feel or respond with probably 90 plus percent accuracy. And the times that I surprise her, I surprise her because I'm acting differently than the way I normally respond. There's an expectation of how I'm going to respond to something based on years and years of experience and knowing how I think and how I react and how I respond. That's the kind of action that this passage is talking about. What is the trajectory of my life over time such that it's habitually true of me? It's characteristically true of me. It's the kind of person that I am. So, the point of that is that while even the most dedicated and spiritual Christians will deal with some sin in their lives, we've already said that, at the same time, here's the tension, it's not a contradiction, but it is a tension, at the same time, the Bible's telling us that being a real Christian means that God's spirit in us will purify us with the result being that we sin less and less over time. Both statements are true. The beast of sin and temptation still raises its ugly head? Comes to get me? It's still there. It won't be finally and fully killed until Jesus comes back. Lord, please, <laughs> anytime. It's still there, even in the life of a real Christian. But the life of God injected into me means it has been defanged and declawed to an extent. It still goes after me. It still paws at me. It still gums at me. And like an idiot, sometimes I still let it grab me and pull me down into sin. But its claws are not like permanent. I don't, it's not like I absolutely have to anymore because Christ has freed me from that. The battle is still going on. The beast doesn't go away, but it has been defanged or declawed, which results in the fact that Jesus' righteousness will manifest itself in us over time. This is where the language gets very binary, very clear. Verses 4 to 10. John here is pulling back the big picture for us. Okay, He's pulling us back to the grand um, sweeping narrative of a person's life. He's, he's looking at the forest rather than a single tree. Um, Or if you want to shift the analogy, he's looking at the entire theater in the war room rather than focusing in on an individual battle. He's seeing all the battles at once. And at that level, we see that at the end of the day, there's really only two camps that a person can be in. Uh, That's what this paragraph is going to tell us. There's the camp of Jesus, or there's the camp of the world, which is Satan's camp. And it's one or the other. It can't be both and it can't be neither. Not according to the Bible. It's one or the other. He unfolds this along these two lines. First, the idea that characteristic sin shows that I'm aligned with the world. Characteristic sin, over time, when that's the pattern of my life, shows that I'm not aligned with Jesus no matter what I say. Look, for example, at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That's disobeying God. Drop down to verse 6, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning as a regular practice. That's pretty strong stuff. No one who abides in Jesus continuously, characteristically, and habitually is defined by sin. That's not what the life in him allows. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. They're in that camp because he's been sinning from the beginning. That's who he is. And lastly, the end of verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Boom. Black and white. Binary. John is pointing out here a common false Jesus. You remember we said that's what this book was all about? Trying to separate the false Jesus from the real Jesus? A common false Jesus back then, first century, probably still is true today, Is the idea that if I say I believe in God, or if I go to church fairly regularly, or I make some efforts to live a good life and avoid really obvious and egregious sins, then I'm a Christian. That's what being a Christian is, right? To be a Christian is to say you're a Christian and to try to live a pretty good life. But such a person may have never actually connected with Jesus as their righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice, to use the language of 1 John chapter 2 the one who has paid the penalty for their personal sin. They've identified and confessed it as such before a holy God. That's what it means to be a Christian. In fact, in verse 6, when he says no one who abides in Jesus, um, he's drawing that language once again from Jesus himself, John chapter 15. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. So abide in me, stay connected to me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. And he's talking about our, our lives, the extent to which we sin. He says, apart from me, you can't stop sinning. You need my life in you in order to make that happen. Like a branch has to stay connected to the vine to bear fruit. So Jesus says, you have to stay connected to me. This reminded me of the fuchsia basket we bought like a month ago to hang outside our kitchen window. And in the midst of, we strung it up differently with some different chains we had that are the right length. And in the midst of hooking it all up, I ended up, butterfingers, breaking a couple of the branches off the fuchsia basket. So we got it hung up, noticed a couple of them were hanging askance, and so Amy ripped them off and put them in a little vase of water and stuck them on the coffee table so we could enjoy them indoors for a couple of days, because there's nice long branches with all these wonderful little fuchsia flowers on them, and they were great for a couple of days. But you know what happens, right? (laughs) The water slows the process down a little bit, but the process is inevitable. I mean, how do you think they look five days later? They're atrocious. They withered up. The white got all brown. The the pinks just got all dull. These things withered up and died. They started falling all over the coffee table and making a mess. And it's like, okay, throw them away. I mean, they're, they're not good for anything anymore. Once the branch got disconnected from the vine, the flowers can't live because the life comes from the vine. That's Jesus' point. He says, if you're connected with me, my life comes into you and it allows you to sin less. It allows you to conquer sin and produce a life of sinlessness. But if you're not connected to me, man, it's just going to shrivel and die. Maybe I can avoid a certain level of sinlessness to an extent, sin avoidance. But over time, the steady move toward increasing righteousness only comes if God's Spirit is in me. That's his point. So, when our life demonstrates characteristic sin, (laughs) characteristically, that defines who we are in the big picture, we're showing that we're not fundamentally aligned with Jesus as our righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice. The opposite is also true. Characteristic righteousness shows alignment with Christ. That's the other point he makes repeatedly throughout this paragraph. Uh, Beginning, again, of verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be fooled on this point. Whoever practices righteousness... They're characteristically shown to be increasing um, in their righteousness. That person is righteous just as Christ is righteous. That's coming from Jesus, not from them. And last but not least, verses 9 and 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Those are strong words. No one who's actually got the life of God in them, that, that life can't not have an impact. Sorry I, that's hard for the double negative. The life of God can't not have an impact. No one who's been born of God just keeps on sinning as if God wasn't there. When you take in the grand scheme of their life, that's just an impossibility because God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on continuously, regularly, characteristically sinning because he has been born of God. And verse 10 concludes, this is how we know Who's in one camp or who's in the other? You look at the grand sweep of a person's life. If it reflects Jesus, that's Jesus in them. There's only one way to get that. If it doesn't reflect Jesus, Jesus isn't there. So when you pull back, try to land a plane like this, what do we do with a passage like this? What's John's point? What are we supposed to take away from it? We've seen that Jesus' righteousness gets passed on to his followers in such a way that it has an impact on our lives. That's the, the miracle of spiritual regeneration, as the theologians call it. Practically speaking, that just means God's spirit is in me. He changes me so that I will reflect him. And when I am changing, that's his work in me. It's not my work in myself. So, so in conclusion, what, what do I do? If I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian, and I really doubt whether my life matches up to what 1 John chapter 3 is describing. Like I'm really struggling with the idea that maybe there's not enough, like how much righteousness do I need to have? How do you measure that? How do you know? Or maybe I'm convinced, whatever the measure is, I'm probably falling fall short of it because I'm just not that great or wonderful or holy a person. Might I suggest, on the basis of this passage, that one of three things may be happening if you're in that kind of a situation. The first thing is that it is possible, I wouldn't assume this is true at first, but it is possible that I'm a good and even religious person, but not yet actually a Christian. That's possible. Uh, It's possible that I prayed, you know, a prayer at a a youth camp when I was a teenager or something like that, Um, or I've simply chosen church attendance and identifying with Christianity but I've never actually repented of my personal sin, identified it, repented of it by name before Jesus Christ as my righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice who pays for that sin for me. I've never gotten connected with him. And if that's you, I pray that God would move you this morning to talk with one of our elders right after the service. We'll be down front here and say... I, I'd like to find out more about what it means to be a Christian. That's the most incredible question a person can ever ask. We'd be delighted to talk with you about it. So if I think I'm a Christian and, and I'm not sure my life is measuring up, what do I do with that? Well, one possibility is maybe I really need to find out what it means to repent of sin and embrace Jesus as my Savior. That's one possibility. There is another possibility. Another possibility is that I am actually genuinely a Christian, but... Just like the apostle Paul told the Christians in the Galatian church, in the New Testament book of Galatians, maybe I started in the spirit, I repented of my sins and Jesus saved me, but now I've been living the rest of my Christian life on my own efforts without much of God's help. And maybe that's why sin is continuously ruling and reigning in my life, because I just keep trying to beat it for Jesus. And we all know how that turns out. It doesn't work. You get frustrated, you get discouraged, and then you can read a passage like this and go, ugh. Maybe I'm going to hell. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I am a Christian, but man, the life of God is trying to change me and I'm shutting it down. I'm quenching God's spirit and I'm trying to do it on my own strength. When the Apostle Paul talked to the Galatians, he was rebuking them. He was not happy with them. He's like, you foolish Galatians. He didn't pull any punches. He's like, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? That's a trap so many of us fall into. You know, we keep talking about these, these three roads that we have a tendency to get down. Throughout this book of First John, we keep saying that Jesus' road is better than the road of shame, the road of striving or the road of settling. The shame road is where I just go into this place where I'm like, I don't measure up and I feel awful and I kind of implode you know, emotionally and I want to hide from everybody else because I just don't think I measure up and I stay stuck there. The striving road is where I have the opposite reaction. It's like, I don't think I measure up, so I'm going to try harder. I'm going to redouble my efforts and I'm going to measure up. And the settling road is kind of somewhere in the middle. It's like, well, I'm doing the best I can do. Hopefully that's okay with God and that's sort of the attitude with which I live my life. And those are three really different roads, but you know what? When you look closer, it turns out they're not so different after all. Like which one of these roads you gravitate toward the most may be a function of your personality or or other things like that. It can be really different from one person to another, but you know all three of these roads have one thing in common. In all three cases... The, the gaze is inward. I'm looking at me. And I'm not looking at Jesus, my Savior. The shame thing says, I don't measure up, I don't measure up. so I'm focused on me and how I don't measure up. I'm not focusing on Christ who measured up for me. That's the whole gospel. The striving road says, I don't measure up, so I'm going to measure up. I'm going to make this happen. And I've disconnected from the vine, and I'm trying to produce fruit on my own. And it just shrivels and dies. I'm not looking at Jesus, who is the source of all of that strength. And the settling road says, this is what I can do. Hopefully it's good enough. I'm looking at me. I'm not looking at Jesus, who is much better than good enough for me. First John is saying, don't go down those roads. The road of Jesus is much better. Turn your heart toward Christ as your righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice. If you feel like you don't measure up, let him advocate for you and trust in that. And if you know you don't measure up, let him pay the penalty for that. This sin today so that you can be forgiven, 1 John 1, 9, and cleansed, cleaned, changed from the inside. We bring those things to Jesus. So if I think I'm a Christian, but I harbor real doubts about whether my life measures up, it's possible I'm a good person, but I've not yet embraced the gospel. I should think about that. It's also possible I am a Christian, but I'm just trying to strive on my own strength too much, and I'm not relying enough on Christ. Let me share with you one final thought. It's also possible that there's far more change, God-honoring change happening in your life than you're aware of. It's possible I'm a genuine Christian who simply doesn't see how much Jesus is working in me because many of us have eyes to see our failures much more than our successes. It's not uncommon for Jesus to be doing a radical renovation work in somebody's life over time, but they're the last person in in the room who sees it. And this is one of the places where the church community can be so helpful. When we get involved in community life groups with one another and we spend time with each other like over time we observe the pattern of one another's life and after a year or two or three years you kind of get to know a person and you can start to point out you know i sense you're discouraged and i'm not you know know, maybe there's a conviction of sin going on there or whatever i'm I'm not going to say you shouldn't maybe be convicted of that but like i see you doubting whether god's even at work in you and let me tell you what i see god doing over here Like you were here three years ago and now I see you here and I don't think that's you, I think that's Jesus. That could be one of the greatest gifts you ever give a fellow Christian. Not just to sort of praise any vaguely good intention as a miracle or flatter, but when you actually see God changing a brother and sister in Christ, let them know what you see. Because at the end of the day, there's only two camps we can be in. And as a church, we're people that want to ground ourselves in Christ's camp. Here's the great news. When you do that, He puts His Spirit in you your life begins to change. Not fully yet. That'll happen later. Thank God, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) But for now, we walk with one another and encourage each other to stay connected to the vine and to walk in light of who Christ is, is our righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice. And we do it together. We are going to do that together right now as we come to the communion table. I think it's a fitting way to wrap up a look at... passage that that tells us are we connected to Christ as our savior or are we just kind of doing our own thing because when you come to communion it's all about being connected to Christ as our savior in the act of communion we it's a simple symbolic act we take a piece of bread we dip in the cup we eat it the bread uh, Jesus says symbolizes or represents his body broken for us on the cross the cup symbolizes his blood shed for us on the cross and so coming to the communion table is all about looking to the cross of Jesus Christ In fact, the Bible says every time we eat and drink this communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So if you come forward or backward to receive communion, as we will in just a moment, the table's in the front or in the back. There's also a couple up in the balcony. When you come to the communion table, you are announcing by your actions that my life is dependent on Jesus Christ. I'm connected to him. So what that means is if you're not a Christian this morning or if you're not exactly sure of what that even means we would encourage you um, not to come forward which is totally fine nobody really looks around or pays attention to that anyway because to come forward is to declare i'm a christian depending on jesus christ so what's going to happen i'd like to ask the worship team to come forward here um, now The guys can go ahead and receive communion and they'll get ready to lead us what'll take place in just a moment is uh, we're gonna have some music playing quietly in the background and we're just going to create a little bit of space um, with just some quiet music in the background to just reflect and to think, I would encourage you to just kind of silently where you're sitting, just pray. Ask God to maybe reveal to you what he wants you to hear, maybe from his word this morning. Maybe it's a conviction of sin. Maybe for the very first time you say, you know what, I do know what it means to become a Christian, and I don't think I've ever done it. I'm going to give my life to Christ right now in this seat. However the Spirit of God is moving you, just do business with him. And then in a few moments, Draythel, Give us a signal and then you can get up and come to any of the tables, whichever one's closest to you. Grab the bread, dip in the cup and eat as a declaration of the death and the resurrection of our Lord that saves us from all sin. So let's take a moment right now and just reflect quietly and let God speak to you.